0: fun to hear our church sing and express their love and affection and faith and confidence in our Lord Jesus Christ together. Hope it's encouraging to your soul. I don't know what the Lord has you going through right now, maybe it's a time of sweet joy or maybe you're going through one of those places in life where it just feels like putting one foot in front of the other is all you can manage. Um, We trust in the resurrected and ever-living Lord Jesus Christ, we have every reason to hope with joy, and life might be hard, and I think this text in front of us this morning in Philippians chapter 2 reminds us of the hope when life is hard. It's a call to humility in the middle of suffering. It's a call to, I think, patience and living as a citizen of heaven. Let me remind you, the context begins in verse 27 of chapter 1, and it runs all the way through verse 18 of chapter 2. In chapter 1, verse 27, Scripture says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. If you remember the letter that is in front of the Philippians, there is a measure of suffering in the apostle's life. He writes from prison. He's writing to a people who are also suffering. And in fact, as you read through uh, chapter 3, he'll talk about the sufferings. For chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 7, he'll say something like this. I have suffered the loss of all things. He says it counts him rubbish. In order that he may gain Christ and be found in him, not having his own righteousness, but a righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. He continues on by saying that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings. So consider this, the Apostle Paul is not only looking on his loss of all things, but the forward or or the future expectation of more sufferings, and he's not discouraged by that. In fact, he considers that the prize of the upward call of God, that is, he might know Christ in his sufferings. In chapter 2, 25, he talks about how Epaphroditus has been distressed and almost died for the sake of the advance of the gospel and the care of the Philippian church. Colossians 1 Paul says he is filling up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. In 1 Thessalonians 2, he says, we we, we suffered shamefully in Philippi. In 1 Thessalonians 2, or excuse me, in, uh, in verse 14, he says that he suffered, or they have suffered these same things from their countrymen. Okay, so Paul says, I count it all loss if I gain Christ. I want to be conformed to his sufferings. And when he writes to other churches, he says, you know how bad i suffered for Christ in Philippi. And then he says, and you suffered too. Aren't you glad you're a Christian? I say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek. The, the, the call of Christ in the gospel message was, come and follow me. Well, where was he headed? To the cross. He says, come and follow me He says, deny yourself and take up your cross. The cross was a signal, a sign in the Roman culture of shame and torture leading to death. For Christ to call his followers to come and follow him was a call of shame, of suffering, and an ultimate price to be paid of death. In fact, 2 Timothy says that all who want to live godly will suffer. Hebrews 11, and this great hall of faith that we have in Hebrews 11, where it starts out and says, without faith it's impossible to please God, gives this this hall of faith, we call it because it's this kind of micro-biographies of these men and women who lived in the Old Testament. Let me read the conclusion of that chapter. Others were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and holes in the ground. They were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better. And think about the commentary on those Old Testament saints is that they died and they never received the benefits of the glories that were promised. And in fact, speaking of Abraham, it says he was looking for a city whose builder and architect was God. Well, He was looking for something that we never received in this life that he never received, all of these people died in faith. The author of Hebrews doesn't say that, so we'd have pity on them. He does that because God also calls many of us, and I think, think we can say safely, all generations that have preceded us to die without actually receiving the promises. God has called us to a life that inevitably includes small doses of suffering. Maybe the suffering in your life is circumstances out of your control whether it is co-workers family I did not get to choose my parents they've generally speaking been a sweet sweet blessing in my life I hope your parents have as well but some people have had really hard parents some people are married to a spouse who goes through uh, significant trials whether it be the Lord calls you to a spouse who one day will struggle through uh, long diseases like cancer God calls you to suffer with them and to love them and care for them in the middle of these sorrows. God might call you to the type of spouse who doesn't have physical cancer but spiritually is hard. And He doesn't call you to quit them. He calls you to be faithful like Christ is to his bride. God calls us to uh, a culture that more quickly than we could ever have imagined 20, 30 years ago, is turning not merely away from Christ, but antagonistically against him. Whereas less than 20 years ago, the whole state of California voted against gay marriage, if you were to stand up and publicly say you're against gay marriage, you would be considered a homophobe and be guilty of something like hate speech. The majority of Californians, mostly unsaved people, voted against that less than 20 years ago. And now you might feel like you need to keep that opinion quiet or you would suffer. So how does the apostle equip the church that is inevitably throughout the years that stretch on after the writing of this letter for which the Holy Spirit is equipping us to, how does the apostle prepare us to suffer? Well, chapter 1, verse 27, live worthy of the gospel of Christ is the principled command. What does that mean? Well, if you look in verses 27 and following, he says that he wants the church to stand side by side together, unified in the pursuit of gospel ministry. If we're going to take this from Matthew, I think we could say gospel ministry is calling people to follow Christ and establishing training centers we usually call churches that exalt Christ and and bring others to Christ. It's really the work of the church, the ministry of the church is what gospel ministry is. And so the apostle says, the church in Philippi, as well as other churches, are uniting both in prayer and financial giving with him in the pursuit of establishing more churches where the name of Christ is preached and people are brought into saving faith and relationship with God Almighty through the gospel of Christ. Chapter 2 then He talks about the church, not in terms of fulfilling mission externally, but how do we stay vibrant in the middle of suffering? Look with me in chapter 2, verse 1. If there is encouragement, comfort, these are things you really, really want when you're suffering. When life is hard, when society is hard, when your home is difficult and painful, when life is throwing suffering at you, don't you want comfort? Don't you want encouragement? Don't you want people to join you in your suffering and and give you affection and sympathy? He calls the church to be united together, verse 2. And then in verses 3 and 4, he says, Here's the caution. When life is hard, what do we usually do? Well, we fight for our rights. We fight as an expression that we are important and people need to be careful around us not to cause us damage or harm. That's the natural tendency. Instead, what we need to do as a church to find unity in the middle of suffering is be humble and hold others as more important or more significant than ourselves. So just consider that, and and again, we're kind of running into this text this morning by giving a survey of where we've been. Listening carefully to others' opinions, being teachable and rebukable, being someone who eagerly hears about the goodness in someone else's life, who prays for that goodness, even if that person's someone within the church who's injured you, loving others enough to pray for their needs as though they were your own, not being so concerned about the injury you receive that you put up boundaries and barriers to keep yourself from being re-injured. Count others as more important, more significant than themselves. Verse four: Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but to the interest of others. So here's the church's call: Be very, very concerned about the, I'll say, godly interests. Because I think that's the context. It's not merely that I care about like making sure you have uh, enough money to get your third car. You might want that, but I think the concern is godly concerns. I'll well, try and where we're going. Understanding. The point about interest is not that we have interests and concerns in our own, our own heart for stuff of life. It's that we have actually an objective to obtain that is Christ-likeness in one another. That's your interest and that's how I I show my godly concern for you. It is. It is not Merely that I care about your suffering, but that in the middle of suffering, I help you move through it to find comfort in Christ and to pursue godliness in it so that that suffering has its purpose. And God does not cause suffering in your life because he's forgetful or calloused or unkind. Your your suffering is so that God might have glory as you move towards Christ and Christlikeness. Having said all of that then, in verse 5 he directly says here's how you move towards Christ likeness. When life is hard be like Jesus. Super theologically deep, right? It's like what would Jesus do bracelets. They're so profoundly simple in the claim and utterly impossible to do without the grace of the spirit. Look in verse 5 have this mind among yourselves. Carry the mind of Christ. Think like Christ. And now you look at, at the example of Christ proper. No one was more acquainted with suffering. No one understood the hardships of life. No one lost more to serve the will of the Father than Jesus Christ. And so the apostle holds him forward a, as an example, not because he's, he, he suffered so much, but because he is who he is. He's the Son of God. He's the one we must follow. Here's his example. Verse 6. Although he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be held onto for his own advantage. Instead, he humbled himself or emptied himself and took upon himself the form of a slave. And being found in fashion as a man, he became human. Now, he took on humanity, to make it say better in terms of the Greek as well as the flow of the text. And having become human, he is obedient. How extensive is his obedience to death itself? No one has suffered like Jesus Christ. No one ever will. No one has lost more because of obedience to the Father than Jesus Christ. And he's our example of humility. No one has suffered more. No one's obedience has cost them more than Jesus Christ. If I were to give kind of three summary words that talk about maybe the loss by addition, Does that make sense? By adding to himself humanity, he he became a slave. By adding to himself obedience to the Father, he he committed himself to a pathway in which he would die. That he gave up freedom and became a slave. He He gave up sovereignty and became obedient. I don't mean he gave those up as the son lost them. I mean by, the, by becoming human, these are things he gave up. He gave up his kingship in heaven to become a slave. And that's how the world treated him. How was he treated by his brothers, his biological brothers that shared Mary as a parent? He's treated as a poser, and a pretender, who needed to come back home and just put in a hard day's work. How was he treated by his countrymen? He was rejected. He was used. They tried to use him for healing and they did not accept his claims. They did not want to listen to his preaching, but they wanted the benefits of his miracles. They used him. And when they were done with him, they killed him. How was he treated by the world? Well, largely speaking, he was ignored. I think in the city of Philippi, even the claim, Jesus is Lord, is part of the challenge and the suffering, because every good Roman would have said, Caesar is Lord, and there is no Lord but Caesar. And the text this morning reminds us that despite the deep, soul-shattering cost of humility, it's worth it. Humility is worth it. So We begin the text this morning, I want you to look very carefully with me. In verses 9, 10, and 11, uh, verses, uh, the previous verses that we looked at last week are one sentence, and this is the second sentence of this section. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So I ask the question, Why should you be humble? The pathway of humility was so expensive for Jesus. Why would any sane person choose humility? Why would you allow yourself to stay in a church where there are other sinners who hurt you? Why would you stay in a marriage that is not pleasant? Why would you faithfully love a child who causes such sorrow? Why would you stay at a job where your coworkers hate Jesus with such vitriol? Why would you stay and endure? And the answer is because humility is a pathway to pleasing God and receiving honor from him. Humility is the pathway for pleasing God and receiving his reward. Look again in verse 9. God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. God highly exalts him. There's actually compound word here that, that God is, and we have it, high exalted, but it's like super exalted. And the point is that that in response to Jesus Christ's humility, the Father acts to exalt him. Notice who does not exalt Jesus. Jesus. What does Jesus do in this text? Go back. Jesus humbles himself. Jesus takes on the form of a slave. Jesus is obedient. What does the Father do in this? The Father highly exalts Jesus. The Father gives. That's that word for graces that we saw earlier in chapter 1 where God gives to us not only to believe but also to suffer. It's that same Greek word here for the Father giving to Jesus a name that is above every name. This is nothing more than the promise of the Old Testament. We talked about those servant uh, texts in Isaiah last week. Listen to uh, Isaiah 53 carefully. Verse 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out, was that because he poured out his soul to death. Behold, verse 13 says, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. This is the Old Testament scriptures. Some 700 years before Jesus Christ became the suffering servant who was beaten for our iniquities and struck for our crimes against God, the Father promises to exalt his servants. Revelation, as we enter into the final prophetic words of Scripture, and we look at the the future in store after sin is done away with, after all all of the enemies are subdued, the picture of Jesus Christ is this. It says, no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb. They will be in it, and his servants will worship Jesus Christ had the most significant loss of any being ever, going from the halls of heaven to the torches of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Not only has God exalted him, that place in which all of creation will acknowledge him, God gives him a name that is above everything every name what is meant by this is probably complex but at least i think we should consider two thoughts and quickly move on but a name is a reputation in the old testament we talk about a a good name is better than riches that is not something for parents to sweat over when they're expecting a child like we better get it right this is more important than riches the point is reputation a good reputation that is, this is who this person is. They are this guy or this woman. And that reputation that their society and friends and relationships have around them is valuable. And the point of Jesus Christ is he is the expression of God's attributes and character. And the Father puts him on display in front of all of humanity that we would acknowledge how glorious the Son is. And so he pursues humility, and the Father says, look at my beloved Son, and gives him a reputation that shatters and shames the world because of our glory in our weak and frail achievements. Compared to the glory and the majesty of Christ, we are nothing. God exalts him so that he has a name above every name. I don't think that this merely means reputation, though. Some people have speculated, and I think they're incorrect just to be clear, that the name is Jesus as though his name is the name. I actually think he will be bestowed with the name Yahweh. That is, it's not not the common name Jesus, but in fact the very precious and sacred name in the Old Testament that a Jewish person would not even say. They would not even vocalize. They would instead say, Lord. Let me read a text here. I think this is actually helpful. This is where the citation comes in just a moment where, where Paul says, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. This is from Isaiah chapter 45. For thus says, and I, I'm just going to say Yahweh here so you understand the, the person speaking is God of gods. For thus says Yahweh, who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it and established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am Yahweh. There is no other. Continuing on, the text says, there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and Savior. There is none beside me. Turn to me. And be saved. All the ends of the earth, for I am God, there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return to me. Every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Who's speaking? Yahweh, the Apostle. The New Testament Scripture says, This is Jesus. The name that Jesus Christ will possess is the name Yahweh. He will be worshipped by every creature. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Yahweh. He is the existing, eternal, ever-living one. Death could not hold him down. It was impossible for him to stay dead, the New Testament scriptures tell us. And so he's granted A reputation, a name, and a position above all of the universe, of all of the world, of all of the creatures. And the text makes that very clear to us, doesn't it? Not only is Jesus Christ granted this exalted position and name, this exaltation is one of sovereignty. And I want to just join this to the next point, but I want to pull them out and separate them just a little bit for your attention. God has highly exalted and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, what will happen? Every knee should bow. Bowing is a sign of worship. It's a sign of homage and respect. It's also a sign of the person doing it, of submission under an authority. Remember a few years ago, our president bowed to some Middle Eastern dignitary, and our media was apoplectic. They were so frustrated and upset with the president that our country's representative would bow. That's why we broke away from England. We don't bow to nobody. Well, that's a sign of American pride. And take that P word for good or bad. So when we have a picture here of bowing the knee to Jesus Christ... As Lord, hear how that would ring in a faithful Roman town of Philippi. Caesar is Lord. Every knee will bow and say, Jesus is Lord. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. It's not merely a physical act of submission. I've often thought, when I think of the, the, the episode in Daniel of this fiery furnace where these men are, are called to bow down and worship, that in a massive choir of people, perhaps they could have just physically bowed down and kept their mouths shut, kind of acted like they were worshiping. You know, like some people do on Sunday morning because they don't really have a very good voice and they just kind of sing. Maybe if you're in a choir and you don't know the words, you're singing Watermelon. You know, the people who, people who masquerade as though they're doing something they're not really doing. But here the scripture says, not only will every knee bow, every tongue will confess this. Every tongue will say, Jesus is Lord. Every tongue. Now how encouraging is this to a city or church within the city that is feeling the pressure and the suffering and the cost of following Jesus to know that the end of the story is the victory and triumph of their king, Jesus. Is God going to call some people to martyrdom? Yes. Are some people going to lose their life? Yes. Are some people going to be imprisoned? Yes. Are some people going to suffer long pathways of seeming endless defeat? Of course. Are you going to have battles against sin within your own life for which you feel absolutely discouraged and as though you can never win? Yes. But here's the conclusion. Jesus Christ is showing us who he is in his scriptures. This is his word, and he's telling us how the story ends. Now, I am not one of these people. I generally do not like the idea of reading the end of the story before I finish. But you can imagine a little child getting a little bit anxious as as the drama of a movie is going on and so mom and dad fast forward to the end and show them the end where the hero lives and doesn't die just to calm the heart of the little child. Scripture gives us a sneak peek at the end. Lest we lose heart. Lest we think that somehow we are on the losing side. Lest we quit. Lest we fail in our marriages. Lest we cheat our children of the discipleship and nurturing they deserve from their parents who should be instructing them to love the Lord and to know him and believe in him. Here's the end. As the credits roll, every knee bows, every tongue confesses that Jesus is victor, Lord, and King. Who's doing is that? That's the Father's doing. So there's this universal worship, confession, acknowledgement. I want to point out the universality of it, though. This is Jesus enthroned in this high exalted position. Well, who exalts Jesus? Who is part of this cosmic worship service? It says, His name above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, verse 10, every knee should bow, where? In heaven. Well, who dwells in heaven? I think at the current time, at least, we might, might at least be able to eke out the thought that angels dwell in heaven. Now, at some point, it seems as though the Lord has allowed Satan to speak to him. Right? We see that in Job, where, where the devil comes and speaks to God. So I, I think we could at least surmise from this text here that all angels, whether elect or fallen, whether they are righteous angels or demons themselves, all angels will kneel before the Lord Jesus Christ and acknowledge he is Lord. All angels, whether fallen or righteous, will submit to and bow to and give honor to Jesus. Now there is a heresy in our world that is repeated in many false religions and expressions of false Christianity that says somehow Jesus and Satan Are similar or equal or like each other or engaged in some cosmic battle with one another. There is, in a sense, a cosmic battle, but it is not close. This is like a dad. This is so much different than this, but like this, like a dad playing wiffle ball with his two-year-old. The only reason the two-year-old can play with the dad is because the dad's holding the bat. God is letting Satan do his work. But there is not a competition going on. It is not as though God is struggling to defeat Satan. God is not breaking a sweat in this battle. This is laughable if we were to compare the two forces. And God, nevertheless, is allowing Satan and all of those fallen angels, as well as us, to sin against him in this moment, but the end of the story is not in doubt. There is no struggle for God to win. It is an effortless expression of his sovereignty to defeat all the powers of hell and all the powers of sin in a moment. It is not hard. This is why he can so carefully and clearly express the victory, because despite how the powers of hell might rage, they are powerless against God. All those in heaven and where? On earth. That would mean us. We are on earth. And not necessarily are all those on earth saved. So now we have all those who are regenerated and believing in Jesus Christ, as well as all of those who are spiritually dead in their sins and remain opposed to Christ, all of them in this moment of cosmic worship will bow before Jesus Christ and acknowledge who he is despite their hearts not sharing a faith-filled, regenerated expression. In other words, this is the defeat of all foes against Jesus. This is not a moment in which there are glad hearts of worship alone. There are glad hearts and submissive hearts. I should say that better. There are glad submissive hearts and there are submitted hearts. And then it says, and those under the earth, lest we lose sight of the hope of the resurrection, whether they are in eternal condemnation or hoping for the eternal reward that is ours when Jesus comes, all those who have ever had the the image of God granted to them at birth, all them, all of those people, will acknowledge Jesus Christ. There is no one who escapes this moment of worship for our Savior. I want you to consider, then, the paradox Jesus gave up by taking on himself the form of a slave, by becoming obedient to the Father, by by expressing that obedience to the point at which, in obedience, he died by by the will of the Father. Now God has highly exalted him given him a position above every position so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, Satan, all of the demons, all of the elect angels, all those who have ever lived from the moments where God said, let there be light until the Son of God returns in glory, all will bow and worship. All will worship Jesus Christ. No longer is he a slave. He is now king. No longer is he the one obeying and serving many. They are obeying and serving him as king and exalted Lord. They are now worshiping him. What did humility cost Jesus? It cost him a lot. He was obedient. So he gave up his own freedom by his own determination to submit himself to the Father's will and to make himself a servant of many. It cost him his life, and in return, the Lord rewards him. Now, there is certainly a sense in which Christ is the central theme of this text, but do not miss the Father. To whom did Jesus obey? He obeyed God the Father. He puts himself not in the hands of sinners, but in the hand of the Father. I think this is where we struggle with humility. If I do that, I will be at their mercy. Have you ever had anyone talk about putting up boundaries? Oftentimes with the, the idea of putting up boundaries is like, I have suffered a lot and I'm done suffering, so I need some, I need some boundaries here because I'm done being hurt. I, I think there are times in which in wisdom, pursuing the cause of Christ, we don't just, we're not masochistic where we enjoy the pain of suffering. You suffer for cause. That is the cause of the gospel ministry in Christ. And if you're putting up boundaries that, that are keeping you from being obedient to God, let's call it what it is. You don't trust Him. You don't trust God. So, so when you're talking to a, a person and they're struggling with enduring the hardships of life, and they're saying something like, I'm done. I don't want to be a doormat. Or they kind of try to scripturalize some dumb thought like, well, we, you know, if I don't stand up for myself, no one will. How does that parade itself as a Christian thought? That is so dishonest. Do you trust God? I mean, at the end, who is standing up for Jesus? I and mean, the cross is one of the most embarrassing, shameful moments in all of human history. Maybe it is the most. Survey the Hill of Calvary. Who's standing with Jesus? Disciples are gone. They fled. There's a couple in a ragtag band. Maybe his mom and some sweet ladies. Man, that's pretty embarrassing. Embarrassing. How sweet the love of his mom and a few others who were standing around the cross. The world had deserted him, hated him, killed him. Who was standing up for Jesus? But it's not as though the father had forgotten. First Peter says he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. So the question isn't, if I don't stand up for myself, Who will? The question simply is, do you trust God? Does God call you to suffer? Sometimes. I am thankful in my life that he has not called me to deep, dark suffering very much. But we all know that suffering may come. So how do you equip yourself to suffer well? This text is meant to equip you to suffer well and not lose the unity of the church, to not hurt others in the middle of suffering, to not run away, to not quit Christ. And how does it do so? It reminds us that Jesus Christ saw his suffering as a personal response to God's will. He was obedient. And what was the Father's response to Jesus Christ's obedience? Therefore, God highly exalted him. And the conclusion of the text reminds us once again that what Jesus Christ was doing, he was not merely doing as an expression of his own character, but he did an expression of worship to the God, to the God who sent him to the cross. Look in verse 11. Every tongue confesses Jesus is Lord to the glory of God, the Father, to be explicit. Right? Like, so we have Jesus Christ, the Son of God, in eternity past, And he, through his humility, walks this path of unimaginable suffering and cost. And God exalts him and gives him a name above every name. And it is not as though in doing so the father lost anything. And in fact, the father is glorified by that. The father is honored by the willingness of his son to entrust himself to the father who judges justly. And in the father's righteous assessment, he rewards as a consequence of Christ's obedience the name above every name, an exalted position for eternity future, and the father gets glory. What is lost when you are not humble, when you pursue your own interest rather than the interest of others? Well, at stake is the very glory of God, the very worth and trustworthiness of your creator. Do you trust in God? I think we can safely say from this text that when the apostle calls us to this pattern, he is suggesting for us that those who suffer for the cause of Christ those who engage the body of Christ by not seeking their own interests, but seeking the interests of others, those who are willing to pay the price of seeking others' interests, will gain for themselves an unimaginable and priceless reward of the Father's delight and honor from Him. Why? Because. Our willingness to suffer, to sacrifice ourselves for the cause of Christ, pursuing the good of others and helping and and promoting within them Christ-likeness, reveals that we love God's heaven more than we love our earth. Remember, we're called to live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. We have been transferred from this world to the kingdom of his beloved son. We are now citizens of heaven according to chapter 3, verse 20. It reveals we love Christ's heaven more than we love our life here and now. Do not fall prey to the temptation to love this life and jeopardize your reward in the time to come. It reveals Christ to the world. We are called to be Christians. We are called to embody the character of Christ. First Peter calls us to echo his commitment to suffer under the hands of God, knowing that God is just. Well, how does the world see the trustworthiness and the grace and the goodness of being a Christian? How does the world know God is worth trusting? If Christians don't trust God in the middle of suffering, who will ever trust God in anything? If those who know the scriptures and know the end and know the outcome of our Lord will not follow his example, how can we with any integrity say, come and follow Jesus? We're like my brothers who told me the water was fine in March when the ice in our pool had just thawed. Well, they weren't getting in the water. I should have known. It wasn't fine. We're Christians saying, the water's fine, jump in, and we ourselves do not trust. How do we call people to sacrifice their own life and freedom for Christ when we won't? It reveals the love of our God. See if we can see this better. It reveals, as we are humble, that we love God's heaven more than we love our earth. It reveals Christ to the world, it declares God's worth stop. Is God worth it? Is He worth it? If there's no reward promised, is He alone worth it? You will see people sacrifice so much for something they value. Christ is asking for you to sacrifice for what He values then really it's an expression of your love and value of him, himself. It shows the world God is trustworthy and therefore honors God. No one has ever expressed such a devotion and trust in the Father's care as Jesus. I do find it immensely encouraging that Peter says he entrusted himself. It's as though he put himself in the Father's hands and said, I will obey take me wherever you want me to go. And the Father led him to the cross. That was not an easy path. That was a path that required Christ to be entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. And so our sweet Savior shows for us how to do this. God is trustworthy. And so as life is hard, as life is difficult, usually the escape is through sinful means. When we're hurt, we clap back with some sinful responses and they stop hurting us. We have a church family that might be unpleasant at times and so we find a different church family because they have not yet yet figured out how to sin against us. We we find ways to, to navigate life to escape injury rather than just trusting the Lord. Now if we know the conclusion of this book, and the conclusion of all of human history, and we can see the credit scroll and see how sweet heaven is and how delightful his reward, we would never flinch in the face of suffering. And scripture says, believe it. Believe it. And live on the basis of that faith. I want to end with one little pastoral admonition. Uh, Lest any of you have a heart like mine that's deceitful. It is easy to think we love Christ and, and we think that somehow loving Christ is distinguishable from loving his church. So let me just remind you of the words of Jesus Christ to his sweet friend, Peter. Peter, do you love me? Peter's response is, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus' response is, feed my sheep. I think we can often... Put up here the love for Christ and neglect that the expression of a love for Christ is a sweet affection and care for the spiritual health and encouragement of his people. If you don't love the people of Christ, you don't love Christ. If you don't care for the people of Christ, you don't love Jesus Christ. If you love Jesus Christ, you will care for and love the people of Christ. Not the organization of Crossway. Not the bank account at Crossway. The people that are Christ's. We will love them if we love Christ. We're going to continue. This this section goes down through verse 18. We're going to continue in the next few weeks looking at that. But let me just once again challenge you with this basic paradox. By pursuing humility and others' interests, you honor God. And in turn, God honors you. This is not anything less than pure grace. You never deserve any reward. It is undiluted, lavish generosity that God calls you into the riches of Christ's kingdom and makes you co-heir with Christ, reigning with him, Scripture says. It is grace that calls us to this. Do you trust the grace of Christ? Do you trust the hands of the Father? Pursue others' interests. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for this text. In it, we see a glimpse of the sweet glory of Christ who trusted your care of him. Who trusted that your hand was guiding him to good places when you led him to the cross? Who trusted you when he was being persecuted, beaten, and killed? And now he sits enthroned in heaven. He is receiving the glory and the honor that is his due, and there is more to come. Father, we are eager for the day when we will be with Christ, united with him, receiving the benefits and the privileges and the rewards of this life. Lord, we do not deserve these things, but we ask with a jealousy that you would strengthen us through the Spirit to live in such a way that pleases you. Lord, please give us both the desire and the strength to follow forward in the pattern of Christ, to walk in his footsteps, to follow him to the cross. Lord, I pray that we would be willing to kill within us those sinful desires that would lead us away from Christ. Father, our homes, our church family, our community, our employment, all of these are opportunities for us to express the attitude of Christ who pursued the good of those you love for your sake as he trusted you. So I ask that you would do the same for us, Father, that through the work of the Spirit, you'd help us pursue the good of those around us for your sake as we trust you. Lord, guard us as we are hurting, as we suffer, as the price tag gets steeper and steeper when we follow Christ. I pray that you give us a strength and resolve to trust you. You are worth everything in this universe. And our little suffering in this world should not cause us to flinch or to betray our love for you. So Lord, help us to be faithful. Help us to love you no matter what the cost. Lord, if, if joys and pleasures distract us, if the accumulation of money is distracting us, help us to put away those distractions and to pursue Christ. I ask that you'd help our church to sanctify its heart, to love Jesus Christ and pursue his pattern of humility throughout our lives. In the name of Christ we ask, Amen.